In our last time together, we were talking about love and joy and peace being the necessary foundation, not only for our development as human beings, but for our spiritual maturity and development because the fruit of the Spirit, which includes things like self-control and endurance and patience and long-suffering, all those words imply negatives that you're having to endure, you're having to persevere, you're having to be patient, you're having to suffer long. These obviously are difficulties. Well, love, joy, and peace is the foundation necessary before God can ever start bringing us to the point of dealing, helping us develop love and endurance and long-suffering and those kinds of things. What happens is when there's no foundation of love, joy, and peace, and then we start trying to develop these other areas of our life, we end up becoming either hypocrites or legalists, or we just give up. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily besets us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, how? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, keep your mind focused on him, so that you don't become weary and give up in your minds. Or one translation says you don't lose heart, either one. You lose heart when you give up in your mind. You know, the, the scripture doesn't make the big differentiation between heart and mind that we tend to make in our English vernacular, but I won't get off on that right now. The point is that there is a there is a necessary back and forthness that needs to take place between difficulty and reward, between sorrow and joy, between sowing in tears and reaping in joy. This back and forthness is all one process. One cannot happen without the other. Uh, both elements are necessary. And so the healthy back and forth love dance between joy and peace is the way we were meant to be formed this dynamic causes the brain to become equipped to endure struggles, survive painful events and losses, and maintain itself in times of sorrow until full joy can return to its healthy heights again. Now this ebb and flow between joy, high stimulation, and peace, quiet rest, in our early formative years, prepares us for the greater ebbs and flows that will be required of us during our entire journey to full maturity in Christ. Obviously, failure to experience this leaves us unavoidably set up for the counterfeit. And the counterfeit is addictions, various addictions of all kinds. We talked in our last session together about uh, you have stimulants that or the counterfeit for joy, and uh, depressants, which are counterfeits for peace. 
Did you ever play peekaboo with your children? Did you ever cover your eyes and then move your eyes and watch the joy flood the face of your little boy or little girl? Why? Because, well, when you cover your eyes, they think you're gone. And then when you move your hands from your eyes, you're back. Why do they love that game? Well, because they're developing something called object permanence, where they begin to realize that when you're gone, you're not necessarily gone. And that's a necessary developmental thing for them. They reach a certain point where it no longer entertains them for you to cover your eyes because they know you're back there. They're not worried about your being gone. But before object permanence is developed, the brain just interprets the absence of your eyes as the absence of you. And they can't see your twinkle in your eyes, the twinkle that tells them they're loved and precious and treasured. They they get a little concerned and you can peep through your fingers and see the look on their face. That you're you're gone. And then when you move your eyes, uh, move your hands off your eyes and they just they don't just laugh, they cackle. Why? Because that flood of joy is flooding their brain with the chemical transformations necessary to form permanence of joy in their prefrontal cortex. Well, Jesus played the that same game with us in John 15 when he John 16 when he says in verse 16 through 24, a little while and you shall not see me, and again a little while and you shall see me because I go to the Father. They're troubled by this and Jesus then explains, I tell you the truth, you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Like a woman in travail with child is in pain, but then forgets that pain when the joy of seeing her baby comes, so in that day you will have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no one can take from you so that your joy may be full. Incarnational reality refers to the central event of all human existence. When God became man in order for man to be eternally united to God through Christ. There is at this moment a man on the throne of God. The mystery of why God created the physical universe and why we have a fleshly body is a study too large for us to address here, but I do want to just mention it because it has to do with the necessity of a physical universe in finally overthrowing the satanic kingdom. And uh, you can just read Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, and you get a little glimpse of what that's about. But that's too large a subject to pursue. For clarity's sake... Just understand this, that making too much of a separation between the physical, the brain, and the spiritual has been a huge mistake in Christian teaching and understanding, or misunderstanding. Christ did not come down and enter a body as a liquid being poured into a container. He became human. Your spirit is not liquid poured into a container either. You are a spirit united in a body 
and the union of your body and your spirit produces the real you, which is your soul. We've been more Gnostic than Hebrew in our understanding, and it has caused a lot of trouble. Most of Western Christianity has become far too cerebral. We read about how to live, then we make reading about how to live all there is. We listen to sermons about it, and we think about it. This is a good beginning. But when we cut off the heart, not mere emotions, but the core of our personhood, our mind, our will, our emotions, we're left with a mind full of information we do not obey and a body full of desires that we either overfeed with licentiousness or try to push down and suppress with legalistic willpower like trying to hold a beach ball down underwater. Recently, there was a, an experiment done at one of the universities to measure the effect of willpower. They took six people, men and women, put them in the movie room with a movie screen and had them watch uh, 30 minutes or so of films of animals suffering in various situations. They told one half of the group without the other half knowing, let your emotions go. If, if you feel like crying, cry. Whatever, you know, if you, let your feelings flow. They told the other group, do all you can not to express any emotion at all. At the end of that experiment, they gave both sets of people little hand, you know, the little hand things you squeeze to build muscles in your hands, you know, the little... You know, you've seen them. They gave, they gave them all uh, a hand thing. I don't know, I'm sure there's a technical name for that thing, but whatever it is. They gave them all a squeezer. The people that had suppressed their emotions didn't have the strength to squeeze the muscle-building machine half as much as the people who had expressed their emotions had. What did they learn from this? Well, one thing they learned is that willpower is a commodity that rises and falls like gas in a gas tank. You can burn up willpower, and at the end of having burned up willpower, you don't have any strength left. This is why people who are using willpower to suppress drives like smoking or drinking or any other sinful thing they are trying to overcome, after a while they give up. They just give up. They collapse under the weight of it. That's why I liken it to holding a beach ball underwater. You can only push it down so far, then the air pressure is going to be against you and you're going to be completely overcome by the resistance. Willpower is not the answer in these categories of struggle with uh, addiction. And so what is the answer? Well, it's an increase in joy. We either live like pagans while claiming Christ, and call that grace, or we struggle under legalism. Sooner or later, such suppression can't be maintained, and up comes the lust with vengeance. Then we take refuge in misunderstood verses like, well, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Mark 14, 28. Well, Jesus did say that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
But the previous sentence is vital and it's usually left out. Watch. Be on the lookout for danger. And then pray that you may be given what you need to not fall under such weakness because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus says don't don't suppress it. Recognize the weakness. Then don't just lay down under the weakness, but go to God and ask for what you need. Go to a relational interaction where you are loved and welcomed and cared for and longed for, where there's a twinkle in the eye of the one you're looking up to, and he's welcoming you into his presence. And Jesus was demonstrating, by the way, exactly how to do that in the garden at that very moment, under the most terrible circumstances in human history. He's gone to pray to his Father to receive what he needs to endure the demands he's now under. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, And we're called to do the same thing so that we don't become weary and give up in our minds. It is possible to live what we're talking about here. Now, there's a brain-spirit connection that we need to understand. And this is great news. Remember when I said in the previous study that I don't want you to despair over the bad news that when the brain doesn't receive stimulus to increase joy that the very brain cells die and slough off where joy should have been so that after a while the brain loses its capacity for joy well the part of the brain that cuts off underdeveloped tissue where joy was meant to be formed is called the right orbital prefrontal cortex which is just a that's just like an address Right means the right side of the skull. Prefrontal means it's behind the eye, orbital. Cortex just means the large part of the front of the the brain right behind your right eye. That's why babies look at the right side of the skull, the right side of the eye, the right side of the brain. They're looking for that twinkle in your eye. That's the joy center. Not only is it the only part of the brain that never sets itself into cement, although there are seemingly now discoveries that there's other parts of the brain that also continue to develop. It used to be thought that once the brain was set, it was set and it couldn't change, but now we know that's not true, and biblically it's not true, because he who has begun a good work in us will finish it. So it can't be true that we're locked in by our brains. Well, now they know it's not true. Uh, the part of the brain that never stops developing is this joy center. It never stops. It's, it's the part of the brain that has the capacity to override primal energies like food addiction, addiction to stimulants, sex, terror, and rage. This part of the brain is, medically speaking, the real you. When you think of who you are, it is in this part of the brain that you get that information. And therefore, that means God, in his construction of the brain and his construction of us, has created this part of the brain to be that which maintains our ability to be the same person even when we're stressed 
and to supply extra support to our joy supply in order to be able to avoid becoming overwhelmed in times of stress. God intended that part to be fully formed by love and then super reinforced by more and more love still, which produces more and more joy, which manifests in greater and greater ability to enter into peace. The joy stimulates, and then the peace, well, where does the peace come from? Remember the peekaboo story we talked about a while ago where you cover your eyes and uh, the baby's got this severe look on his face because you're gone, and then you move your eyes, move your hands off your eyes, and he just cackles and giggles and sparkles and then you cover your eyes again and the same thing. Well, have you noticed, those of you who've had interaction with your children like that, you, there comes a point when they, they look away. They, they, they don't want to play anymore. Why? It's because the joy stimulation happening in the brain in the right prefrontal orbital cortex is so stimulated that they have got to stop. It's too much. They can't bear it. And that's a good thing, because when they look away, that's when the capacity for peace is developing. Then they're ready to go again. They want to play some more, and then the same process over and over. Joy reaches its peak-out point, and then they look away because they can't take it anymore, and then they go into peace. Peace develops with the ability to know that joy is not gone. Joy is Coming back, the source of joy is there. Everything's in place and they can rest. Now, the part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens is that which deals with pleasure, learning, music, sexuality, as well as to all addictions. That's the part of the brain that screams, I can't live without it, whatever it may be. It should have been trained early on by the dynamics like we've been describing and also by negative, what we think of as negative dynamics like the baby screams for mommy but only daddy comes. The baby screams louder because daddy came instead of mommy. The, the nucleus accumbens is screaming, I can't live with you, I've got to have her. Baby screams even more loudly for mommy and doesn't get mommy, but doesn't die from it. Thus begins the lesson that the nucleus accumbens is not always right. When we fail to learn these lessons of training the nucleus accumbens, then God has to use other ways. So as we grow with a childish nucleus accumbens that is still screaming, I can't live without it, whatever it may be, God has to work such situations into our life through his word, through pastoral care, through spiritual disciplines, and quite often through uncontrollable events of life that we can't fix. And all that serves to make up for the lost lessons to train the nucleus accumbens that we can live without that which we thought we could not live without. This is where despair becomes a gift of grace. 
Now, I've mentioned this before in previous studies. Uh, there's a wonderful line in uh, Anne of Green Gables where Anne is going into one of her dramatic fits and uh, her aunt says, uh, she says, uh, Marilla, don't you, ever, don't you ever get into despair? And Marilla says, no, I do not. Despair dishonors God. And I love that. Because despair does dishonor God. But the fact is, sometimes we despair. Even the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he despaired of life when he couldn't find Titus. And uh, he felt like he'd received a sentence of death. Why would God let him go through that? Well, here's why. When we go to despair, despair says there's no hope. It's all gone. It's over. God lets us hit despair, then he takes us a little bit lower than despair, and then raises us up again with a greater understanding now that our nucleus accumbens is not always right. There are things we think we can't live through that we can live through. There are things we think we can't survive without that we did survive without. And this is how we are to count it all joy when we fall into diverse trials and temptations, knowing that the trying of our faith develops endurance. And endurance is rooted in joy, and joy is rooted in experience of God coming through for us and bringing us out of hopeless situations that we thought we couldn't live through. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, we have the ministry of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers listed here. Now, the purpose of this study, besides just providing us with individual understanding of how all this works, my main purpose in, in last time together and this time together, and maybe, maybe some more up ahead depending on how this all flows, is I want to address why the church has failed so miserably in being effective in helping wounded people recover, why we have been ineffective in not helping people overcome addictions, why we are struggling so often with uh, repetitive falling back into old patterns we thought we'd overcome, Seems like many of us walk around holding beach balls under water and the beach balls pop up now and then and bust us upside the head and bust everybody else upside their heads. And then the church is more and more scandalized by it. Why is that? Well, Ephesians 4 describes the ministry of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. This is what we're called to do. It says they, they were raised up, given by the Lord Jesus to his church, for the perfecting of the saints. That word perfecting is artizo in Greek. And this word is used to describe the mending of fishnets or the mending of broken bones. And so when you put it together, the, the purpose of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers is to mend God's people so they can catch fish. So they can become the nets of the ministry, which is exactly what Paul says. He says the purpose is so that you can mend God's people in order to equip them to do the work of the ministry. There's no such thing as ministers of the gospel professionally 
and then lay people. That's a complete unbiblical declension. Uh, the whole purpose of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers is to train God's people to do the work of the ministry. And Keta Artizo has to do with mending the broken places in them so they can then do the work of the ministry. Uh, saints are to be equipped so they can go forward and do the, the work of the ministry. We're finally getting to that place in the body of Christ. We're, we're slowly but surely coming to the place. Paul says there in Ephesians 4 that the work of the fivefold ministry of mending will continue until we all come into the unity of the faith. We're obviously not there yet. John 17 says we will get there though. And of the true knowledge of the Son of God unto one perfect man, the body of Christ, one perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we be no more like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in him in all things. He is our head, our source, from whom the whole body each individual, closely tied and fitly joined together, first to Jesus and therefore to each other. By that which every joint supplies, that means every person brings things into the relationship that are necessary for the wholeness of everybody. According to the effectual working of the measure of every part, that means all parts are to be fitted for this work by the Holy Spirit. And this makes increase of the body into the edifying of itself in love. The New International Version of that uh, says, to equip his people for works of service so that the body may be built up both in number and in blessing until we all reach into the unity of the faith and in real knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, that we be no longer infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching uh, that comes along. But instead, speaking the truth in love, we grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does what it is designed to do. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 also. The message version of this says it like this, till we all move rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's Son, fully mature adults, fully developed within and without like Christ, not prolonged infancies among us. No small children who are easy marks for imposters. God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth and tell it in love, like Christ in everything, who keeps us in step with him and with each other so that we grow up in love in everything. It's hard for me not to take off at this point on the whole subject of the eventual unity of the body of Christ. John 17, Ephesians chapter 4, Psalm 133. 
but we don't have time to go there now. But let me just say that the unity of the body is exactly related to the topic that we're on, and that's how broken people will be healed. They, they'll be healed in the body of Christ when the body of Christ becomes the body that the Scripture describes instead of the divided thing that we are divided by men's every wind of doctrine and men's craftiness and manipulation and men's false ideas of how it all is supposed to go and how it's supposed to work. Uh, you know, speaking of not growing up, spiritual confusion that is so rampant in the body of Christ and some some parts worse than others, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, notice he, he says in the love chapter, put away childish things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says there's schisms among you. Some say I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. Uh, if, if you ever make the mistake of stumbling onto some of the witch hunter websites that are just all over the internet. There are some people out there evidently, bless their hearts, I know they they I know they mean well, but they evidently spend all their time studying the parts of the body that they don't agree with and, and turning everybody that they don't agree with into witches that they then burn at the stake verbally. And I'll, I long for the day when that time-wasting and even worse, detrimental and abusive and unloving practice is purged out from among the people of God. We do need to correct error, but we don't throw people away and castigate people and treat them like devils. No matter how much we may disagree with some point of doctrine, uh, infants only do what they feel like doing, and they stop doing what they don't feel like doing. They just stop. Uh, if there's no feelings to support their needed action, they just don't do it. Parents help children grow to the place of being able to do what they don't enjoy doing because it's right and helpful that they learn to do it. But, on the other hand, when we try to speed up developmental stages, it results not in the development but in the retardation, as when using guilt, fear, or duty. So it is in the church. People are like, now let me just stop here. Somebody say, wait, wait, duty? I understand why guilt is not a good way to motivate children. Fear is not a good way to motivate children. But what about duty? Well, duty has its place, usually has its place in terms of the military. Body of Christ is not the military. There is an element of militarism, militantism in the body of Christ. Yes, the book of Ephesians describes the, the church as a building, the church as the family, the church as the body, the church as the army. But a family becomes an army if it's a family. All you got to do to turn a family into an army is to attack it. But an army is not necessarily a family. So if you have duty motivating you as a good soldier for Christ, but there's no sense of family, 
your duty won't last. It'll do, it'll disintegrate into legalism. Or worse, you'll give up on it and go back into sin because you can't maintain fleshly motivated uh, legalisms for very long till your flesh screams against it. People are kept in infant stage in many churches. Uh, in, in much of their spiritual development, they are infants. So they only want to do what they want to do and have to be moved to do hard things by either pleasure manipulation or by fear. Either one is religious deception. Guilt, fear, duty, or manipulation, pleasure. This produces 2 Timothy chapter 3, a scenario in which a terrible list of evils, including being lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, is referring not to pagans, but to those who, quote, have a form of orthodoxy and godliness, but deny the power of the real God. The religious system has removed the necessary training and nurture and family life, which are the only way we can ever come to the place of being able to perform what is preached. We've removed the engine that drives the message toward reality while continuing to preach the message, demanding the performance without the power that uh, leads to our current bankrupted spiritual condition, to the cultural rejection of that as irrelevant to real life. Rules for rules' sake produces rebellion. The New Testament didn't need all this brain stuff, people say. So why are we talking about it? Some say the New Testament doesn't, didn't talk about brain chemistry or psychology or group dynamics. Why do we need to understand all this stuff? Why don't we just preach the Bible? <laughs> oh, how I wish we did just preach the Bible and then obey it. We don't. We only take the parts that are culturally acceptable to us, skip the parts that challenge our flesh. I happened across a video, a, a YouTube video of my former Old Testament professor. God bless him. He was he was my he was my one of my favorite one of my two favorite professors, and uh, he was preaching in a big. Baptist Church in Texas. And you know what he said? God bless him. This is why I loved him so much. 30 years ago, I loved him. He's still just as solid. He said, I got a question for all you Baptists here. He says, why are you Baptist? Now, I'm not, I'm not picking on Baptists. It, it just happened to be that this was a Baptist church. He said, I got a question for you. He said, why are you Baptist? Paul can't be a Baptist because he spoke in tongues. Jesus can't be a Baptist because he drinks wine. So why are you Baptist? <laughs> and then he, you know, he went on from there. It was just wonderful. It was just, just wonderful. The best message on speaking in tongues I've heard in I don't know how long. He said, uh, 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 he, and he told him, he said, I, I don't speak in tongues. But he said, how dare you? Tell your people that they're forbidden to speak with tongues and then say that you preach the Bible. You can't possibly preach the Bible and forbid people to speak with tongues. You're a hypocrite. You're hypocrites. You only hold onto the parts of the Bible that fit your 
religious culture. That's what the Pharisees did. I just loved it. Anyway, he was my, he was a great professor. Oh, how I wish we did preach the Bible and obey it. But we don't. We take the parts that culturally fit our flesh. And we skip the parts that challenge our flesh. We do have many wonderful and increasingly helpful teachers and preachers. And we should be thankful for them, just like Dr. Utley I just mentioned. But we still hear often in our churches about being born again and going to heaven and and then get manipulated either by guilt, fear, or duty, or pleasure manipulation, eating meetings, latte bars, smoky rock and roll stages, etc. While the New Testament teaches that the new birth is a transforming event that takes us into a completely different culture here on earth for everyday living altogether. That's what the new birth does. I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong per se with lattes or coffee breaks or eating meetings or even smoke and gobbledygook up on the stage. Uh, Although I'm I really could go off on that right now, so I won't. American Christianity is mostly talking about God stuff in a crowd of mostly unrelated individuals who only know each other on a shallow level with few love bonds holding them together in any kind of unity. So the power to transform either individuals or the culture is almost non-existent among such churches. The sad and unnecessary reality is that most people are isolated, loveless, divided, and therefore increasingly addicted. If we had obeyed the New Testament, the brain formations described in this study would have taken place naturally without any reference to brain research whatsoever. But now, after years of disregarding Scripture, we are suffering the consequences of a so-called spiritual life that is cut off from its real practices. Western Christianity is a shell of itself. No wonder we cannot change culture, but on the contrary, we are the ones being changed by the culture when there is truly more love and relationship and fun at the local bar room than there is in a local church. Only guilt, fear, and duty will keep church people away from the bar and in church. Still worse is that when we preach morality apart from power to live, we just sound like moral morons, isolationist idiots, and holy hypocrites. We'll take homosexuality for just one instance. I've already mentioned it. Christians are understandably concerned with sexual morality related to same-sex marriage, but why were we not concerned in 1962 when the pill made adultery flourish by protecting adulterers from the embarrassment of pregnancy outside marriage covenant? Where was the Protestant church in 1972 and 3 when we began to get rid of any babies that slipped past the pill by legalizing their murder via abortion? In 1976, one of my heroes, Governor Ronald Reagan, then governor of California, gave us no-fault divorce. And same-sex marriage was born that day, philosophically. It just took a few years for it to reach its present point of prominence, but the way was being paved for it 
over 60 years ago by heterosexual sin before gay rights became a frontline issue. It is perfectly understandable for a cultural path of birth control, abortion, no-fault divorce, premarital sex, and pornography to eventually produce a fatherless world where homosexuality is the logical, even expected, next manifestation, as sure as planting corn brings a corn crop. Now we want to make rules to protect our white picket fence. God is kicking down that fence. Yes, I know we must defend certain aspects of the fence, but not with political action alone. We must become the family of God on a level we have never done until now. I want to just read these scriptures. I know you may get bored with it. I don't care. Listen. Make yourself listen. If you're not driving uh, where you have to be awake, then do something to you know pinch yourself to hear this. Mark chapter 9, verse 50. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. John 13, 14. Wash one another's feet. John 13, 34. Love one another as I have loved you. John fifteen twelve. My command is this. Love each other like I love you. John fifteen seventeen. This is my command. Love each other. Romans twelve ten. Be devoted to one another with mutual affection. Honor one another above yourselves. Romans twelve sixteen. Live in harmony with one another. Romans thirteen eight. Let no Debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Romans 14, 13, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Romans 15, 7, accept one another just as Jesus accepted you. Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. I I know that one has to be uh, (laughs) culturally amended to some degree, but Let's don't take it too far and just melt it down to a stupid handshake. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three. When you come together to eat, wait for each other. First Corinthians twelve, twenty four and twenty five, God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lack honor, so that there should be no division in the body, that its parts should have equal concern for one another. First Corinthians sixteen twenty, greet one another with a holy kiss. There's that one again. 2 Corinthians 13, 12, kiss again. <laughs> Galatians 5, 13, serve one another in love. Galatians 5, 26, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Galatians 6, 2, carry one another's burdens. Ephesians 4, 2, be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave you. 
Ephesians 5.19, speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Ephesians, I mean sing to each other. You ever sing to each other? <laughs> if you can't sing good, sing loud. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to each other. <clears throat> Colossians 3.13, bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, now about your mutual love, we do not need to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, therefore encourage each other with these words. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage each other and build each other up. 1 Thessalonians 5.13, live in peace with each other. Remember, peace is not the absence of conflict. It's wholeness of life. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, make sure that nobody returns wrong for wrong, but always be kind to each other and to everyone else. Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that no one's heart may be hardened by the trick and craftiness of sin. Hebrews 10.24.25, consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Don't give up meeting together all the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 13.1, keep on loving each other. James 4.11, do not slander one another. James 5.9, don't grumble against each other. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. 1 John 3.11, since God so loved us, we ought to love each other. 1 John 4.7, let us love one another for love comes from God. 2 John 1, 5, I ask that we love one another. 1 Peter 1, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere mutual affection, love one another deeply from the heart. 1 Peter 3, 8, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4 9, offer hospitality to each other without grumbling. 1 Peter 5 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5 14, more kissing. <laughs> Are you getting the point? Love one another. You can't do this on Sunday morning, sitting in a square box building, staring at the back of somebody's head, listening to some man or woman stand up front talk. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with standing up, the guy standing up there and talking. I love Alistair Begg. I would, I, I could listen to Alistair Begg all day long. But, you know, Alistair would be the first to say the same thing I'm saying. 
Uh, I love Dr. David Jeremiah. Love to listen to him. Love, love to hear not, o- not only what he's preaching, but just the spirit of the way he communicates. I, I have the greatest respect for godly men who have self-control and have been well taught and they behave themselves with uh, courtesy and clarity and truthfulness and integrity in the pulpit. I'm attracted to that, see, because opposites attract. Anyway, now, must our cultural system be shattered before we start obeying these scriptures? The independent spirit and materialism of our culture not only disallows this kind of love, but militates against it. So we are the most lonely, isolated, and sickest culture to ever claim the name of Christ. Electronics is reshaping our brains to resist and finally ignore relationships. We knew this instinctively, but now we have increasingly supportable empirical evidence that the constant use of cell phones, iPads, screens of every sort imaginable is rewiring the brains of an entire generation to not bond, to not relate, to not even feel the necessity of the emotions that would call for that, uh, uh, not to mention that which makes for decency and humanness much less closeness and intimacy. God in his wisdom and mercy will do whatever it takes to bring us back to sanity, unity, and human health. The collapse of the current order may be the very disorder that sets the stage for the possible restoring of some of what is being lost. To the degree that that thought frightens you only shows to what degree we are more bonded to the system than we are to God and to reality. It does not seem feasible that anything short of a huge paradigm shift can break us out of our current straitjackets. We may say amen to everything that uh, you've been hearing here, yet not have whatever we need to make real changes in our own way of living that would produce the longed-for healing that we're describing. God will have to help us, no matter what form that shift has to take, whether a collapse of the system or an outpouring of the Holy Spirit or both, more than likely it will be both. Well, for a window into the early church, I want to show you something about grace and legalism and what it's going to take to bring real healing to to addicted, bound brothers and sisters. It's kind of interesting if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. Uh, there's two letters that I want you to compare in your mind. Don't turn to them, but just think about this. The Galatians and the Corinthians. The Galatians, Paul spends the first few chapters just tearing them up. And he doesn't waste any time. He doesn't give his normal greeting in the opening of his letter to the Galatians. He he's I mean he goes from Dear Galatians, this is Paul. What in the blazes is the matter with you? How have you so quickly fallen from the grace of God? I mean he doesn't waste any time. Do they have any drunk people at their communion services in Galatia? No. 
Do they misuse the gifts of the Spirit and act like crazy people, uh, talking in tongues out of turn and carrying on like hyenas? No. Do they have any incestuous people among them uh, sleeping with their stepmothers? No. No. In fact, they're just the opposite. They do everything by the book, everything correct. And Paul is so angry at them that he just goes off on them in very strong terms. He asks them, who has demonized you? Who put you under a witch's spell that turned you into a bunch of legalists? Having begun in the spirit, you're going to perfect yourself in the flesh, he says. Now, what about the Corinthians? He writes the Corinthians and he, he opens up with a loving, gentle, patient uh, address to them. He says in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians, uh, you come behind in no gift. Well, we know they came behind in no gift because they were misusing the gifts right and left. But he doesn't even fuss at them about that until chapter 12. In, in chapter 1, he says, uh, I commend you. You come behind in no gift while waiting the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, contrary to many folks today who've been poorly educated, did not believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit were going to disappear. He believed the gifts of the Holy Spirit were going to be in the church functioning until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's an aside. Really, it's not an aside. It's very much to the point. But the point is, uh, you get my point. Galatians and Corinthians. Why was Paul so patient with the alcohol misusing, incestuous, gift of the Spirit misusing, childish, self-centered, personality-worshipping Corinthians, and he didn't have any time at all to waste uh, on the Galatians' legalism. I'll, I'll tell you why. The Corinthians, carnal, messy, full of problems, yet Paul commends, he commends their love and their faith. Why? Because love and faith will eventually produce transformation and good fruit. But legalism cannot ever produce anything but death. The Kassira translation of the New Testament, Dr. Kassira says, Surely you know that wrongdoers will obtain no share in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Do not allow yourself to be deluded. It is not those engaging in fornication, the idolaters, the adulterers, those acting as partners in unnatural vice, the sodomite, the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the slanderers, the extortioners, who will obtain a share in the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But you were washed. You've been made holy. You've been accepted as righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Then he goes on to say, I am free to do as I will. Yes. Now, Paul's not saying there, I'm free to do as I will. He's quoting the Corinthians who say, I'm free to do what I will. And Paul says, yes, but not everything can be done without harm. I'm free to do as I will, you say, but there is nothing I will allow to gain mastery over me. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is meant for food. But God will destroy both of them 
eventually. Paul, again, is quoting what they said. Paul's not saying that food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is meant for food, but God will destroy both. God, Paul's not saying that. He's quoting the Corinthians who've been saying that. They're saying that as an excuse to just do whatever appetite thing they want to do because eventually they're going to you know, die and go to heaven and be shed of this physical body and it doesn't really matter. But Paul answers, as regards the body, your body is not meant for fornication but for the Lord. And the Lord is meant for your body. And God, just as he raised the Lord to life, will by his power raise you up to life too. So your body's not going to just disappear in the grave. Do you not know that your bodies are part of the body of Christ? Shall I take away then from Christ what forms part of his body and give it over to a harlot like you've been doing? Far be it from the thought. He said, don't even think of it. Surely you know that he who joins himself to a harlot becomes one with that harlot, that body. The two, says Scripture, shall become a single body. But the man who joins himself to the Lord becomes one with the Lord, spiritually speaking. Keep clear then from fornication. Any other sin which a man may commit is taking place outside his body, so to speak. But he who engages in fornication commits a sin against his own body. Now, before I go further, let me just say, wait, there, Paul, there's lots of sins you can commit that are outside your body. Well, that's true. Paul's not saying that all the sins in the world happen inside your body. He's saying that the one sin that most directly affects your body for ill is Join it to a body of someone you're not married to, not in covenant relationship with. He says, or is it that you do not know that your body is a dwelling place for God's presence? So great price was paid to redeem you, so let your bodies serve and glorify God. These folks had struggles. They had misunderstandings. They had goofy, stupid ideas like a whole bunch of people I run across now who have unbelievably foolish ideas. Like one person told me not long ago, they thought it wasn't fornication. If, if you slept with somebody you're not married to, that's not fornication. It's only fornication if you're married to somebody and then you betray your marriage partner by sleeping with somebody. Just all kinds of this was not a child. This was not a teenager. This was somebody who should have known better. But they don't know better because nobody, I don't know, I don't know what they hear from pulpits. Anyway, many sins are against our bodies. Overeating, drunkenness, daredevil stunts, that's against your body. He's referring to the body's unique spiritual ability to become one with another person. First, the Lord then in the Lord via marriage to one other of the opposite sex to whom the person remains faithful for life. To be immoral is to destroy the capacity for that oneness and to greatly dishonor the Lord. The Corinthians were true believers, but they were stuck in their development. Paul doesn't rebuke them nearly so strongly as he does the Galatians because legalism leaves no place for grace. 
while immaturity does make a place for grace. Now we're all stuck in some way or other. We're all stuck. And God helping us, we're going to get unstuck. But we'll jump into that in another session.